The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers. Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Chris Free, author of Operator Syndrome, to learn the different layers of the term Operator Syndrome and the many cutting-edge treatment modalities that are becoming available to veterans today. So, Chris, I think when we ended our last podcast, you were just about to answer the question, how do you treat operator syndrome? Okay. Well, let me go back to, let's go through, let's run through the conditions that that are included in this. And I call this, uh, these are interrelated difficulties. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, they, they influence each other. So, for example, if you're not sleeping, you're more likely to become depressed. But if you're depressed, you're more likely to not sleep well. So it's a vicious cycle. And now we've got this these things. So I'm just going to run down the list. This is operator syndrome, okay. traumatic brain injury, uh, endocrine dysfunctions, which in, in men typically include reduced low low testosterone, but it can also include elevated estrogen and changes to thyroid, human growth hormones, some other things. Then we get sleep disturbance, um, waking up in the middle of the night multiple times. Um, Bad dreams. Um, a lot of guys wake up in the night to any little sound, and then they patrol their house to clear their house to make sure they're safe. Then we have sleep apnea. You asked earlier, why sleep apnea and low testosterone? And I think probably goes back to brain injury as well as the, the op-tempo and the chronic stress. And you have problems with pain. I don't know anybody in the, in the community that doesn't have pain throughout their body. Uh, we're not talking about, we're not talking about a profession that, that, that is just simply easy, right? We're talking about rucking and, and running and diving and jumping and rappelling and climbing with weight on the body. Um, I did the Murph challenge a couple of two years ago. Uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a high intensity event for a civilian like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, put on a 20 pound weight vest, run a mile, do a hundred pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, and then run another mile with the vest on. My vest was 20 pounds. Um, and I, it smoked me, um, to do this event. Um, I can't imagine doing, trying to do that every day with a, you know, Hundred pounds of kit mm-hmm. on. So chronic pain is, is is significant. Headaches are significant problems. Then we get into addiction, uh, which is primarily alcohol, uh, from what I from what I've seen, but not limited to alcohol. Then you get into the psychiatric problems, depression, some PTSD, anxiety, anger. Um. What does that lead to? That none of that, none of this, including the lifestyle, is easy on a marriage. So we have a divorce rate of probably 150 to 200 percent. 
It affects the spouses. It affects the children. Um, we have prob- We see problems with sexual health and both physical and emotional intimacy. Um, problems with memory, concentration, um, co- all all forms of cognitive function. It's very hard to learn new things if you have a TBI. Which think about the the unfortunate irony there. What do you need to do it? when you transition out of the military you have to learn a whole new set of skills habits and and even culture it's harder to do that with the tbi and you've got the perceptual impairments hearing vision um balance vestibular functioning even a lot of guys tbi leads to balance problems being dizzy vertigo symptoms and then the last two things um Transition difficulties, going from military to civilian, and doing it at the same time as you have these existential concerns. Survivor's remorse is very common. Um, grief, loss, loss of tribe, loss of purpose and mission become part of all of this. So that's it. Wow. And, and there's, there's probably some other things mm-hmm. that, that, we, that, that we, we could even talk about. I mean, I don't consider... Cancers, respiratory illnesses, or or immune disorders to be aspects of operator syndrome per se, but there's no doubt that the community has incredible exposure to toxins, all kinds of toxic exposures. So we are seeing, I do believe, we see elevated rates of of cancers, immune disorders, and respiratory illnesses, um, and that's going to take some time to really understand. Uh, and study, and I think people are just now starting to look into that more. And of course, the, w- the one word I haven't used so far is suicide. So uh, I'll bring that word up now. We have everybody I talk to, every guy, every spouse, every woman talks about um, friends and comrades of theirs who died, who have died by suicide in recent years. I don't know of any good, true epidemiological data, but I do believe that we have, we need to be concerned about an unusually high rate of suicides in this community. Yes, that that's absolutely true, and you know we've seen the numbers just continue to rise over the over the past mm-hmm. years, and mm-hmm. and I and I think you know just this term operator syndrome is just showing how much deeper the injuries are than I think we ever even imagined. You know, it makes me feel like we've just been scratching the surface all these years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the VA likes to call it PTSD. That's kind of the easy button for the VA. Almost Mm -hmm. every veteran that goes to the VA is diagnosed with PTSD. And there's disability for that and there's... Um, the treatment for that the VA provides is what they call exposure therapy or cognitive processing therapy, essentially psychotherapy and, and medications, psychiatric medications. Um, that may be, that may be very useful for many people. Uh, I, I don't have any problem with psychiatric medications or counseling. Uh, I often, I often recommend those to people. However, 
that's not the main thing that people need often. And it only, and as you said, it oftentimes only scratches the surface of what they need. So people aren't getting what they need. Um, and in particular, the soft community is not getting the, the diagnosis of traumatic brain injury or the treatment for traumatic brain injury at VA that they, that they should have. And part of that is the VA's definition and understanding of traumatic brain injury is really largely based on impact forces. I don't think they're fully caught up on the impact of, of blast waves that most VAs and most, most, um, most people that do TBI evaluations at the VAs. You want to talk about treatment? Wow, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what do we do about this? So now I just depressed the heck out of everybody. Oh, uh, no, you uh, really, but, you but, really but, have. So, well, and now let's get to the good news. Yeah. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different things out there that, that can, that can help a lot. And at a simple level, um, if you do nothing else for yourself, learn about sleep hygiene. Try to stop drinking alcohol heavily. Um, try to incorporate relaxation routines daily into your life. Good sleep, good relaxation, whether that's yoga, meditation, um, listening to music, a hobby, praying, um, Bible study, whatever it is for you daily is really important with good sleep hygiene and reducing um the alcohol. If you do nothing else but those lifestyle changes, you're you're already making huge progress. Treatment. Um, I, you know, I mean, I always start with: Are you suicidal? Usually, the answer is quickly. Let's move on from that because it's not that's not the immediate problem. Um, I mean, if somebody is suicidal, they need to be probably in a hospital or in a very safe environment um, for for a period of time. You know, a few days weeks till that's stabilized but that's that's not usually what i encounter um what i tell people right off the bat is do you have a primary care doctor and if so go have a go get a meeting with that primary care doctor show them show them the operator syndrome paper take it into your doctor whether that's primary care or if you have a psychiatrist or psychologist take that paper in and discuss it with them educate them because they don't understand. They need a little education themselves. You can, from your primary care doc, you can easily ask for a referral for a sleep study. That can be done anywhere. It doesn't require any true special, rare special expertise. Um, a blood test to get hormones checked. Again, that's basic medicine. Uh, that can be done anywhere. From there, you could get a referral. You could ask for a referral to, to behavioral health to see a, a counselor or a, or a psychiatrist for consideration of medications. Um, many places, many hospitals, many clinics have pain management clinics. Investigate that. Go check that out. Pain management is so much more than opiates and pills. Um, really good, really interesting book that I just picked up um, last week called Song of Our Scars, and it's all about chronic pain in, in our society and how we don't fully understand it, how medicine isn't treating it very effectively, and what can be done at the individual level. What a beautiful title that is. I love that. It is. It is. It is. I was thinking, man, I, I'd probably read that book no matter what it was about. <laughs> the title is, is so incredible. So, Song of Our Scars. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So from there, 
Okay. Now we've talked about some of the, the basics. Now let's go into to some of the, and, and you can put all that together. You can piecemeal this. It's nice if you have somebody to help you coordinate this and quarterback it. Um, if you're married, I would say to any, any operator or anybody in the community, enlist your spouse in doing this. Do it together. Um, you know, I've got some health issues. Um, I've been married. I'm fortunate to have a, to have been married for 35 years. Um, I know that I'm, I do better when I share my health struggles with my wife, when I include her in my, in my treatments, when she knows what's going on and she understands. Um, and she's often my best, you know, my best, uh, doctor telling me, Hey, you forgot to do this or you didn't do this or did you make that appointment? Um, wow, that's so and I true. This, and, yeah. and I do, I do that with her a little bit, but I think it's, you know, um, I think a lot of men, uh, especially stoic, um, high-performing men who have always been on top of everything in their life, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to be vulnerable with somebody else. But, but there's just so much, so much value in including your spouse. Well, yeah, and I, I want to. I just want to interrupt you there and just say, Please. you know, in our in our community, that the spouses are. <laughs> really what's keeping them together, you know, when yeah, when they're yeah, living yeah. their lives after their service, untreated, not understanding what's wrong, you know, with their husband or wife. It's the spouse that, that keeps that family together and keeps them going. So um I really feel oftentimes they are the unsung hero. And um I'm I'm just so glad no that question. you that you no question. you know kind yeah. of made that encouragement to you know, to reach out to your spouse and take that journey with them and let them help, help you and continue to help you to right. heal. So, yeah. Right. Right. No question. hundred percent agree. And let's also, let's also put this into the conversation. I think we all know spouses suffer. Mm-hmm. They do. Being the wife of an operator inherently, just by definition in the, in, if that, when the operator is active duty, they're not home a lot. And when they are home, they're, they're busy and they're focusing on other things. So part of what a spouse has to, to live with and work with is being a single parent and a single family head mm-hmm. much of the time from a functional perspective. Um, and there's a loneliness there. Who do you talk to? Who can you trust? Um, the wives, other wives, other couples, other people you know in the civilian world or even in the military side of things really don't have a way to understand or relate to what what the spouse's experience is because it's so unique itself. And then you think of the children, you know, being a child of, of, of somebody in the, in the special operations community. Your, your parents away a lot. You've been to a lot of funerals, uncles and aunts who have died in, in combat or training. Um, you live day to day as that child with an aware, with a heaviness and awareness that your parent might not come home. You're um, peeling back so many layers of the onion. Uh, there are, it's a big onion and there's a lot of layers to it. <laughs> it is. So the family needs healing too. And what, what's, you know, what does it, what does it do? We know, we know from, Old prior generations that 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 when the home when there was more of a defined gender role difference and the man and the husband retired, 
and then was at home, that that was a stressor on the wife to have her domain essentially interrupted by this person who's not supposed to be here eight hours a day. That's on the civilian side. Now imagine that as the transition. Now your husband that's been off at war for 20 years is home a lot. And maybe he's grouchy and irritable and angry. Maybe he's, he's cognitively not functioning very well. Maybe he's depressed. I mean, all the things that we just talked about at operator syndrome. Now you're living with that, that person. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of help and healing that spouses and families need too. And I'm a big fan of, of, of education for them and even just family therapy, just to help the family talk about these things or the couple talk about these things. Okay. So we've talked about all the basics. Now let's talk about some of the unique and novel treatments that are out there. Um, I always recommend stellate ganglion block therapy. Stellate ganglion is a ner- are nerves that run through the neck. This is a medical procedure. We've medicine, American medicine has been using since the 1920s. It's safe. It has very minimal side of minimal to no side effects, and it's and it's profoundly effective for certain things. About a decade ago, two surgeons, a couple of surgeons, a few surgeons at one of the Tier One Army SF units noticed that when they gave the SGV treatment for pain, the soldiers also reported a reduction of anxiety and PTS symptoms. So what they did was they did a couple of randomized controlled trials, and now they've established a really impressive scientific evidence base for the value of SGB treatment for PTSD, anxiety, and maybe even TPI. Um, does it last forever? No. Um, it's a 20-minute it's a outpatient procedure to get one side done, and you can go back the next day and have the other side done. People... People walk out of the office and they report profound and immediate relief from certain kinds of pain, but the anxiety and the PDS is lifted. And it doesn't last forever, but it's a reset. It's a very powerful reset. It's a way of reminding people, hey, this is how you used to feel. Wow. 10, 10, 15, 20 years ago. This is how you used to feel. Use this next three to six months of relief to to get caught up on your sleep, but also to get invested into, into other therapeutics that are going to have a long, long lasting, uh, benefits in other ways. And you can always get the SGB, um, treatment. Um, again, it's not just, you can't just, I mean, you can do it more than once. I know people have had it done five, six times over, over the course of years. Wow. That's, that's a, a very, very safe, very effective, very powerful treatment. And here's the kicker. Almost no psychologists or psychiatrists are even aware of it. I was just going to say, I've never heard of it before. Because it's recent. It's new. Uh, and I mean, yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to completely bash the mental health industry, but, but it's, 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 uh, it's very conservative and we, we do what we do and therapists get paid to be therapists. Psychiatrists get paid to prescribe medications. Mm-hmm. Neither one really make any money by referring somebody to a neurologist or a surgeon for the for the for SGB, and it's kind of that the, the fact that that's a that that's happening in a field other than psychiatry that is maybe part of the complication here. Next treatment I like, um, you know, let me let me say, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
put qualifying qualifiers to the next two treatments. I think we see a lot of promise in hyperbaric oxygen therapy and psychedelic therapy plant medicine for many people. And both seem to have, have benefits on mood. Both seem to have benefits on um, cognitive functioning. Both seem to have benefits for um, healing the brain, neuroplasticity and, and, um, and brain health. Now, I say seen because most of, the, most of the evidence I'm talking about is anecdotal. And with anecdotal evidence, you, you can't necessarily know causality, and you also have to think about the possibility of there being a very large placebo effect. Mm. But we are starting the whole field of mental health, but also many foundations are now looking at psychedelics and evaluating psychedelic treatments um, using traditional uh, clinical trial designs and, and um, neuroimaging um, studies at UT, for example, UT Dell Medical School in Austin. Um, a design of a study might, it might include, and I think they're doing this at Stanford and John Hopkins as well, probably many other places, Mount Sinai, um, looking at clinical outcomes, randomized clinical outcomes, looking at pre-post brain neuroimaging, looking to find differences in brain neuroimaging before and after psychedelic uh, treatments. Um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, there, there are a few clinical trials that have not shown strong effects, but I think myself and many others also look at those trials as having some flaws. Maybe they're not the last word. So we do have some, some what I would call, let's call them novel, innovative treatments that are not yet fully supported by research, but maybe in the next few years, and I think are worth investigating. Mm -hmm. Another treatment that I think uh, I'm seeing some really good effects from is, is a, it's, it's essentially a form of transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a treatment that has been FDA approved for depression and anxiety for, I don't know, six or seven years now. It's been, there are a few attempts to, to, to modify it, to make it more effective or to make it more target specific. And one group that I think is doing some really good work with this is, uh, it's a, they, they call it MERT, M-E-R-T with a little E. Um, and I've seen their data, I've worked with them a little bit on their data. It's very impressive looking. Um, it's essentially transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is just what it sounds like. It's a small dose of magnetic stimulation that's that's put into one side of the head, and it goes across. It crosses the crosses the goes through the brain to the other side. They this this MERT treatment is a variation of that where they've they're using EEG measurements to improve the specificity uh, and precision of the of the TMS. Okay, for a lay person, what does that mean exactly? You're, you're saying they, <laughs> I have no idea what that yeah. means. They put it yeah, um, on your brain, like uh, yeah, in your okay, head. So, uh, okay, let me describe because I'm not an expert myself. Uh -huh. um, so let me describe. Let me just let me describe what you would what the experience would be like. Okay, you if you're a TMS patient, you go in for an appointment probably three to five times a week mm -hmm. for usually four to eight weeks. The, go the goal is to get, I think, like 30, 30 treatments or so um, masked fairly in a fairly short period of time. 
each treatment session is probably about 45 minutes, maybe 20 to 45 minutes. You sit in a reclining chair that's very comfortable. You are reading a magazine, a book, or watching TV, if you like. And the, the arm, if you will, is a little bit like, you know, when you go to the dentist and they take x-rays, mm-hmm. and they've got that big thing hanging from above that they can swing around and, and point at your head from any angle. Mm-hmm. That's what this is kind of like. They position this thing next to your head, and they can move it around to get whatever angle or spot they want. Mm-hmm. And then they and then they turn it on, and it and it it's not it's not implanted in your head. It's just touching <laughs> your head, or it's right next to your head. <laughs> thank and it you. just buzzes. Thank you for clarifying it, that. <laughs> it, it just it buzzes a little bit. And what people describe is they feel a little tingle, Mm -hmm. sometimes a little tickle, sometimes a little burning sensation right there at the spot. Mm -hmm. And then it's over and they leave and they come back the next day and they do that every day for about 30 sessions. Not every day, but they they try to get about 30 of these sessions in. And gradually people describe that their depression and their anxiety starts to subside. Wow. There's not a lot of side effects. There's not really, it doesn't seem to, it's not like um, ECT. It's not like electroconvulsive shock therapy, which is much more dramatic. It doesn't interfect. It doesn't seem to damage cognitive functioning. Um, it seems to be a pretty popular treatment for people who, who like it, who use it. Now, you can't, your average person can't just go, oh, I'm depre- I've got depression, so I'll go get TMS treatment. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet. Because the guidelines say you have to try psychiatric medications first before insurance companies will pay for the TMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, someday that may someday that may change, um, but that's where we're at now. Very interesting. Uh, diet supplements all have a role. Um, finding a mission and purpose. I mean, there's an existential aspect to this. It's not all just simply medical. Um, so. That that transition is a is a is a challenge for people. Um, that has that has a real, you know, it's just part of being human. Is is people have to find their next mission, their next passion, their next goal and purpose in life. On top of everything else that's going on at the transition point. Mm-hmm. So that is a lot of. A lot of very interesting information and um, will probably be new to a lot of the listeners, is new to me. Um, and I'm just wondering, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they are wanting to explore these many different treatments that you just described, is that included in, in this article, Operator Syndrome? You know, those specific... No, no, okay. it's, no, it's not. It's really not. And I mean, we're all still learning. So we're just, this is conversational then. This is not something that you, okay, okay. Want to make that clear. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, and, and there's one other thing I haven't talked about, but I think we need to, we need to say it. Mm -hmm. There are a small number of programs in the U.S. that are, that are essentially holistic, comprehensive diagnostic uh, programs that attempts to really understand the full range of injuries that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Most of these programs um, are essentially residential. They're not, you're not like in a locked ward. You're not spending the night in a hospital. 
but you're living near the hospital and you go into the clinic or hospital for, let's say it's a two week, two to four week program. You go in every day for six to eight hours and you're getting your brain scans, you're getting genetic testing, you're getting neurocognitive testing, you're getting a full comprehensive workup by a multidisciplinary team of people who, who are, you know, who each have a specific role but are working together in a team format. And that's the one place, by the way, where you don't see the fragmentation of care that's so rampant in, in, in healthcare. So, Maybe that's, maybe that's a topic to touch on. These holistic programs that exist are unique in the sense that they, they have all the expertise kind of collectively brought together. Mm-hmm. What are those programs? Well, if you're active duty, there's the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, NICO. They have several intrepid centers and, and intrepid spirit centers around the country and some other types of programs. Most of these programs, people go and they, they get started on treat. They get evaluated and then they get started on the treatments, but they leave the program with a, like a report of, of their problem list, the diagnoses, the, the assessments, and here's what the treatment plan is. And maybe some of it's been started, but then you're, you, you go home with a, essentially a, a problem set that, that is going to be heavily up to you to solve. And that's where, the, that's where challenges also come in. So, yeah, I think that that is really um, amazing, those different types of programs. And so you you mentioned NICO and the Intrepid Center. Are there any others that that you know of that? Well, on the civilian side, there's Mm -hmm. Home Base in Boston, which is is affiliated, I mean, it's at Mass General, affiliated with Harvard and funded by the Red Sox. Um, I think that's a pretty good program. the, there's a program in Atlanta, I think the Shepherdsman program, there's the Marcus Brain Institute in Denver, which I don't know too much about these pro, these last two programs I just mentioned, I just know of them, and mm-hmm. I'm sure there are many more. Um, we have a small program at Houston Methodist Hospital uh, in Houston that's um, designed along these lines. But the, part of the problem is, is there's so few slots if you want to get into the home base program, they may have a year waiting list at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's probably a significant period of time. Well, and it's funny um, that you should mention them because I my podcast previous to this was with home base, and um, yeah. there, you know, it can be up to a year. But I think you know the way Patrick had explained it to me was that they they essentially triage, um, you mm-hmm. know, the okay. level of okay. necessity. So there's a triage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You talked to Patrick there, okay? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I did. I've, I've, I've met Patrick a couple of times. Yeah, um, great guy. Yeah, yeah um, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Red Bait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am a big fan too. So, but I kind of want to I want to explore this concept that you mentioned a little bit more because I I think that you really hit the nail on the head when when you talked about the fragmentation of the healthcare system. Mm. Um, yeah, and I wondered if yeah. you wouldn't just kind of expound on that just a little bit. Well, I'm it, I'm old enough to remember when you went to see a doctor and the doctor would actually sit with you and look you in the eye and talk to you without a computer mm. in between you. Um, over the course of the last 30 years, healthcare has changed dramatically. 
what we now have is we have a we have a system, and it's not really even a system. Uh, it's we have a reality that if you go to see a doctor, that doctor will own a very very narrow segment of your care and won't own the other things of your care. So your primary care doctor is kind of the quarterback and the triage and the, and the place that we start. But if you get, if you get referred to see a cardiac specialist, for example, and you're being treated for two or three other conditions, the chances of your cardiac doc, your psychiatrist and your, I don't know, your, your diabetes doc talking to each other, and having a full awareness of, or even having an awareness of what each of what each is doing, is very is, is part of the problem because it doesn't happen that way any, much anymore. Um, your your cardiac doc may not know what's going on with the rest of your medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have, and, and and physically, it's not in the same place. You may go over to this side of town for one type of treatment, and another part of town for another type of treatment. And there's not even a connection between the two. You may get prescribed medications for one condition by one specialist that are contraindicated for medications you you may have been prescribed by a different specialist in a different um, discipline. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot there's not a lot of reconciliation of of this. I've seen this in my own healthcare. I've got probably a few complicated um, conditions myself. Um, each of my specialists shows zero awareness of what the other specialist is is doing with me. In fact, they don't even usually ask me about symptoms from another uh, that that another spe- that are officially identified as being another specialist's illness. You see, people have surgery and they die a week later. They're out of the hospital and they die a week later. But the surgeons are like, "Not not on me. My surgery was a success." Oh my goodness! It was that. It's that next person that it got handed off to that, that, that's responsible for, for that outcome. And, and, and yet we fall, people fall through the cracks of that, of that so-called handoff all the time. It happens all the time in America. So America has a problem with medical care that we all are experiencing. None of us are getting our care without that fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Now put that, now think of somebody who has a very complex set of problems that, that, that involve the brain, the heart, the lungs, the GI system, the nervous system, uh, joints, ligaments and tendons, family systems, societal systems. Now that person with, that, with this complex operator syndrome is thrown into a civilian, once they're out of the service, they're thrown into a civilian medical medical uh, world that's very confusing, that is not well prepared to receive them or care for them or even understand them. And they have a TBI, so, so being able to navigate and negotiate and figure things out is harder. Mm-hmm. I guess my point is the fragmentation of medical care in America is a problem for all of us. And it's an especially significant problem for the community, right? The soft community, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, like I said, you hit the nail on the head. And I, I was in healthcare for ten years myself, and um, as a nurse and a clinic supervisor, and I, that is what I saw 
every day, all day long. And so um, I think just like speaking about it, just like identifying the problem is maybe like the first step in, in changing it. Because if we're not talking about it, if we're not identifying what's wrong with it, then how can mm-hmm. we work mm-hmm. towards a solution mm-hmm. and work towards this healthcare reform that's so massively needed? So I know that was a segue from our, our conversation, but just such an impo- important uh, point to make, it I is. think. So thank you. It is. Yeah. It is. So, and, and I try to, and, and let me just add this mm-hmm. on top of that. I try to encourage people when I'm talking with somebody about their their care and their wellness and their, their journey to health or whatever you want to call it. I think it's always helpful to be mindful of the barriers, mm-hmm. of the obstacles, and to predict them in advance. Because if I, if I go to my clinic, if I go to my own doctor and they've messed up my appointment or something and I get mad, I walk away and I go home stewing and I say, screw it, I'm not going to, I just won't do it. Mm-hmm. That happens all the time to it people. Does. And, and we know that it's going to happen. So what I try to say to people is steal yourself for this. We can predict this is going to happen. You have to, and you have to not get, you have to not walk away because of it. Cause, cause then you're only hurting yourself. You got to stay, you got to stay in the fight. You got to, you got to continue the mission and keep going. You can't quit. Just keep going. Love that advice. And that is universal. So that's for our special operators, our special ops community. That's for EOD. That is for everyone. So um, Mm -hmm. thank you for that advice. Um, So I need to ask, what was your goal in publishing this article, and how do you feel like it's being received? Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, Well, the goal was just to get the word out, was to help educate operators and to help hopefully you know hopefully some in the medical community will 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 be educated or will look at it and it will stimulate research or stimulate you know questions and thoughts and discussions and improvement and ultimately down the road maybe some some changes and improvements i i've never i mean i have over 300 scientific publications and this one is unique in the way that it's been received and I've never published anything that's had the kind of reception that this has had. Um, and what I, what I mean specifically by that is usually when a scientist publishes a paper, it's read by other scientists. And over time, research it is it's a cumulative process. So if you look at the, at the research trajectory of any individual condition, you see early studies that are descriptive followed by studies that are more epidemiological, followed by studies that start to look at solutions and treatments. And it's it's cumulative. The things we know about PTSD now are different from what we understood about it 30 years ago. Um, so that's it's usually a slow a slow play before anything, any kind of publication or, or scientific research has any impact. That said, this paper got got picked up and and received by the soft community itself, not to other scientists, not other doctors heavily, per se, but by the very people it was written for and about. Uh, and I've never experienced that. I've never seen that wow. um, before. Um, I have to add. First, I have to add something. I hate to keep interrupting you, but I actually okay. yeah, I received good. this this article from. A special operations um, 
gentleman within the EOD community. He emailed it to me. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm part of that phenomena, so I can, yeah, I can yeah, attest yeah, to yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the paper was published, I think it came out in February of 2020. And I, I kind of put a, a posted about it on LinkedIn when the paper first came out. Um, and I didn't expect there to, I mean, I do that often. I didn't expect there, I didn't expect any kind of like grassroots level reaction. But in the first two months, I think I got about 500, four or 500 emails from people around the world requesting the paper. Wow. And they weren't, and they, and they were operators, spouses of operators, people working in foundations. Um, and it was just, it was, it was well received. Mm-hmm. Um, by the community in a way I'd never anticipated and in a way I've never seen. They were like, finally. I, I, I was, I was invited to a, I was invited, invited to an event at Fort Bragg community last summer. Um, it was in Fayetteville, so it wasn't on base. Um, and it was, it was a, it was the task force dagger and the 107 folks, um, together were presenting, uh, on, on toxic exposures, cancer, Impacts, but also all the endocrine and, and functional impacts that, that operating has on people. And so I was there as a, it's just, they invited me and I thought, Oh, I'll go. So I went to this event and, um, it was at a community place. There were probably 200 people in the room and I was led to believe I was told that the audience was, was primarily green berets and their spouses. Um, some active, some retired green beret. And so I'm sitting there in the audience and the lead speaker who's active duty himself, uh, Jeff Darty, a friend of mine, um, just kind of introduced me. He said, Oh, we're lucky. We have Chris. We're honored. We have Chris Free in the audience tonight. He's the lead author of the operator syndrome paper. I was thinking, that's just a nice little recognition. (laughs) The room, the room erupted in applause. There was an ovation. And it was, it was raucous. People were, were whistling and clapping and, and shouting. It's like, holy cow, I've never experienced anything like that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a nerd with, I'm just a nerd with the degree, you know, great degree. But the point is, yeah, yes, uh, appreciative, Mm -hmm. but also just the fact that everybody in the room already seemed to know all about it. That's, that's, that's partly what stunned me. It wasn't just that people were appreciative. It's that everybody was, everybody was in the know. <laughs> on this. Where do we go from here? Um, I don't know. I've seen a lot of, there's a lot of foundations right now that are doing things to study, to fund treatments related to operator syndrome. Um, there are several foundations that have explicitly uh, made operator syndrome a core feature of what they're trying to address. Uh, I'm writing a book. Probably other people are too. Um, we need more research. We need more treatment programs. We need more education uh, across the board for medical providers. Um, and this is, this is going to be a funny thing. This may sound funny, but I come from the mental health field is all about cultural competence, right? Mm-hmm. If you get trained as a mental health practitioner, cultural competence is at least two or three of the courses you're going to take along the way. We talk about it all the time. Um, but guess what? There is zero 
cultural competence for working with the soft community, typically across the board, zero cultural competence. And what do so you that, what do you that, mean? What do you mean when you say cultural competence specifically? <laughs> okay, uh, specifically, I mean under first of all, understanding what what an operator did, mm-hmm. what the training meant, what the career it meant, what the deployments were. Nobody, people don't understand that. Yeah, people just don't have a an, uh, have a, a benchmark for because it's hard for it's hard for people to grasp, mm-hmm. frankly. When yeah, you tell it's, people, it's yeah, unbelievable. It, it's almost yeah, unbelievable tell, what they go through. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. People can't even wrap their minds around it, um, or they, if they hear it, they don't even believe it. Yeah. Oh, you did a thousand a thousand missions? No, nobody's done a thousand missions. That's wow. impossible. <laughs> it's like, uh, hello, yeah, people have done a thousand missions. Oh my um, You have um, cultural competence. You have so you have an, a failure, a lack. You have an ignorance about the experience and the life. You have an ignorance about the job. You have an ignorance about the effect on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's massive, and people don't understand the culture. People don't understand the nature of the the culture within teams, within units. Um, like I, I kind of, I can say something like, you know, most guys that get a concussion in a in a, in a that are in soft, if they're not knocked out, they're not they're not telling anybody that they got a concussion. They're not raising their hand and saying, I need, I need to take a knee because I just had a, a, a massive head blow. They don't do that. And yet they go to the VA and for one of the, one of the VA's defining, uh, evaluate, evaluative questions for a TBI is how many times in theater did you lose consciousness from an event? And if you lost consciousness, how long were you unconscious for? That's a culturally incompetent question to ask a soldier from special from the special ops community. Because it, it doesn't it does it's because it's kind of not really a relevant way of understanding mm-hmm. their their brain injuries. Here's another example. This is one. This is something that that, that bothers me. We have national efforts now at the at the, at the level of of. Of the, of the White House at the level of the VA, we've got these national right. suicide prevention efforts. They focus mostly on, and they're, they're right. utter failures, uh, as anybody who looks at them with any common sense knows they will be failures. They emphasize hotlines, and they emphasize, and they, yeah, which is stupid, and they emphasize, and they emphasize taking away guns. I, I saw an interview you did with the Special Operations Association of America, and it headlined with the statement that said, operators deserve real treatment for operator syndrome. Um, mm-hmm. I found that profound, and I wanted to, to find out what does that mean to you? Well, as we've been saying, the, the, the nature of, of the work and the life of being either in special operations or family of special operations member is very unique. The experiences are unique. The lifestyle is unique. The injuries are unique. And so quite simply, my belief is that I don't think there's any real argument 
about this is that we owe our we owe our nation owes a special debt to the soft community, mm-hmm. and and we're not and we're not doing right by them. We need to do right by the people that have done so much, um, and we need to provide the care for the injuries that they've sustained. And I say that about all veterans. Mm-hmm. We 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 owe every veteran proper, appropriate, quality, humane, and compassionate care for their for their injuries that they sustained in the course of their service to America. And my point about the soft community is the injuries they've sustained are different mm-hmm. by and large. And we should take care of them. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think you have given us so much to think about. Um, and I think this article is is making a huge impact. I mean, clearly, the reception you've received has, has shown you that, um, that you're impacting um, the lives of special operations community and their families. And I think this is just like a first step in, in a long journey. Um, but yes. I think that the, the listeners in our community can take away some very valuable resources from some of the different therapies that you've mentioned that you have seen are actually helping. And maybe just someone recognizing that this is so, so multi-layered, um, is mm-hmm. this a huge step in the right direction? So I'm just, I'm really blown away by, by all the passion and the work you've put into this paper. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you took the time to, to talk to us today. Um, just going through the process and explaining it to us and, and what are the solutions? And I have to say personally, I'm very encouraged by this interview that there is hope for healthcare reform because there's people like you out there that are making a difference. And so, um, thank you for that. My pleasure, and thank you. I mean, it's a, for me. This is the this has been the privilege and honor of my life to mm-hmm. have it have the chance to to work with the community and to to play a small part in in giving back to to people who've done so much for 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 all of us, and and really done it quietly and, and in ways that are completely unsung mm-hmm. by 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 our nation. Yes. Yes. So, thank you for having me. It's it's an honor to be on your on your podcast, and I'll be happy to come back anytime. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, right. yeah, I think we touched on so many subjects that could be their own podcast, and I and <laughs> I understand. Sure. I kind of knew going into this one, it was going to be a little bit longer than the the average podcast, but absolutely um, worth the listen because so much so much information. Um, so we have a tradition here on Behind the Warrior, and we we like to end all of our interviews with a couple questions about your favorite things. Okay. Okay. So right. um, my first one is what is your favorite thing to do with your free time? With my free time. Do, if you have any, do you have free time? <laughs> not, not a lot and uh, not in the same ways, not in the same ways as I used to. Um, but I do have an answer to your question. Do I have some free time? We all have some free time. I, I like to watch movies that are mysteries. I like to read mysteries, read crime novels. Um, I read a lot of history, um, books. Um, but I, probably my, my biggest hobby is writing. I published nine, uh, novels today wow. under a pen name and a pen name of, it's my first middle name inverted. So it's, uh, the pen name is Christopher Bartley. Um, but I've written 
nine novels, and I'm hoping later this summer my agent and publisher are going to publish my 10th novel and republish all my prior novels, not under the pen name, but under my actual real name. Wow. And the new power is refreshed. Um, so that's that's one answer. How I listen fun. to a lot of music. That's, that's the other thing. I listen to a lot of music. And I can listen to music while I work, so... Uh, while I'm writing uh, so much of the day when I'm not on in meetings or or uh, individual consultations I, I'm writing and, and listening to music well that leads into one of my other favorite questions which was what is your favorite type of music uh, oh man there's a, there's a <laughs> well when I was in college I had a radio show that was a blues show um, so my my favorite music is kind of everything it's blues it's rock um, love jazz, um, a lot of jazz. And this is the next two pieces. And I, I listen to some classical. Uh, I, last couple of years, I've developed a fondness for opera. So I listen to opera uh, a little bit. Uh, La Traviata is probably my favorite one so far. And I'm a big metal fan, heavy metal. <laughs> wow. You sound like a Renaissance man. <laughs> no, I just I just listen to a lot of music because I can. I can do it while I'm doing the things, and and I almost can't write in science silence. <laughs> I have to have something something playing. Interesting. And I'll vary and I'll vary what I'm listening to based on the maybe the writing, uh, whatever I'm writing. Interesting. So, okay, here's the last favorite question: What is your favorite thing that- about living in Hawaii? Hmm. I like the mornings. I like to get up and sit on my porch and listen to the birds sing and feel the breeze and stare out at the ocean. You know, it's funny that you say that because I think if, if the listeners listen closely to this interview, there was a, a, a time that I could hear the birds. <laughs> I, 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 I was like, I always wanted to stop and say, are, are there birds where you're at right now? <laughs> Yeah, I actually thought about that right before our call. I was going to ask, meant to ask you if it was okay to have the windows open, if the birds were going to be distraction. But yeah, they sing in the morning uh, for a couple hours, and, and then they rest. Um, you also could have heard the, my neighbors up the hill from me are, are goats. There's about 15 goats there, so sometimes <laughs> you, people hear them. And then my neighbors down the hill from me are horses. There's three horses down there, so sometimes you hear, hear the horses. Wow. You're painting a beautiful picture. Well, Chris, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been a very exciting uh, interview, um, and I, we appreciate everything that you're doing um, for the special operations community and the veterans community and, and really just the world with, with our health care, our current crisis in health care. So thank you, and we wish you the best of luck in, in all of your future endeavors. Thank you, Maria. I'm sure we'll talk again. I'm sure we will. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.